Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel Ben Corin. This week, Intelligence Squared partnered with Economist Radio to bring you this special episode where we have the economists Anne McElvoy interviewing Douglas Murray. Daniel, tell us a bit about the episode. So this week, we had the conservative political commentator Douglas Murray being interviewed, as you say, by Anne McElvoy, who is a journalist for The Economist. And it was about his new book, The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity. And as you can tell, it's Douglas Murray's critique of identity politics and how he believes that identity politics in their current form are dividing society. He was challenged by Anne McElvoy on his theory. And we hope you enjoy listening to the episode. If you do, please take a moment to rate and review Intelligence Squared on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor for The Economist and Head of Economist Radio. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I've enjoyed reading this book, Douglas, because it seemed that you were very exercised by something that tends to divide people quite strongly at the moment. And it's this. At a time when we know that a lot of traditional political ideology is in retreat, that a lot of other beliefs are in retreat, be it around religion, about values, about how families should live and the roles of men and women, that other ideas have flourished. And the big baggy one is something we can call identity politics. And it seems to have got your goat (laughs) Enough for you to sit down and write a good few hundred pages about it. Uh, So before we we explore the goats, tell me what was the moment when you felt this is the book that needed to be written now? I think it was when I noticed the same thing happening in each of the subjects I take on chapter by chapter. I, I, as you know, I address in the madness of crowds, uh, gay, women, race, trans, And the thing that particularly sparked me off was the realization that I already saw that there were things that were happening in each of these issues, each of these movements. But the thing I suddenly uh, became most aware of was the realization that at some level, not for everyone, of course, involved, but at some level, this was becoming purely about politics. And the realization I had really that, that, that sparked that was, and I give an example in each chapter, but at the Republican convention in 2016, Peter Thiel, the Silicon Valley tech billionaire, says on the platform, I'm proud to be an American, proud to be a Republican, proud to be gay, and proud to be supporting the Republican nominee for president. And he's immediately attacked by the main gay magazine in America that says that he's no longer gay. They say it, they said, um, he may sleep with men, Peter Thiel, but in no way is he gay. And this just reminded me of something, which was that I've seen this happen in each of the other things. Jermaine Greer had not long before been denounced as no longer a feminist. And uh, Kanye West was soon to be denounced as um, no longer black. And I just thought, well, in that case, at some level, this is just pure politics we're talking about here. Again, not for everybody, but for some people, identity is being used as a weapon to do something else. 
Let's talk about what identity politics is first, and then we might return to those examples and why they were pursued so vociferously and also what you think is wrong with them. But what is identity politics to your mind? It seems to me that everything that we think about the way we respond to the world, we do consciously or otherwise through the prism of our identity. We can't escape the veil of our own perception as the philosophical way of looking at it. So what makes identity politics different from the fact that we just experience things through our own lives and who we are? Well, the first thing is that I tie identity politics up with the whole claim of intersectionality, perhaps the ugliest word in the language, but it's unavoidable. And it's it, it long ago burst from the um, reservoirs of Berkeley and other American university campuses, burst out through the political sphere. And I would argue, and one of the shocks actually of researching this book, was seeing the way in which it had burst out across the corporate sphere. That, that, that in recent years, huge corporations, uh, public companies were trying the sort of intersectional game within their own companies. And that, that in particular surprised me. But the, the intersectional slash identity politics game, I think, is disturbing for a number of reasons. And one of them is, I mean, again, some of this is just a personal feeling, which I try to flesh out in the book, but the personal feeling that we were trying to get past identity traits in my own lifetime, in my own adult lifetime, that we were sort of hoping that we were getting past the stage where this was the way in which one would cohere as a group. And that somehow, just at the moment when we thought we might have got past that point, it suddenly everything became about it again. And I, I give the analogy in the introduction mm. of the book as like watching a, in all of these rights, nobody denies there's sexism in the past, racism in the past, homophobia in the past, and still some in the present. Nobody would deny that. But that to some extent in the last uh, 20 years in particular, it's been like watching a train drawing into the desired destination, only just as it's drawing in to get a head of steam, go shooting off down the tracks and start scattering people in its wake. Why, why, why has everything become about whether you're a man or a woman, black or white, gay or straight? To unpack that a little, if you say the train was drawing into the station, it sounds like you think the journey was pretty much complete and that though you just said that you didn't think, that, strangely enough, that the world was a perfect place. But I suppose the challenge and the reason people do adhere, if they do, to the strong new very vocal identity politics is they don't think it had got mm. very far. I mean, you, you fundamentally don't see that yeah. uh, the same way. Haven't they got a point? Isn't there still too much racism, too much sexism, too much of the things that progressives have said that they were addressing, but that there are, these are justified frustrations? Well, on those on those claims, and I do, I do say there are there, what I'm not arguing is that there's absolutely nothing to do in all of these situations, and that everyone is already equal. What I'm trying to work out, among other things, is is the game that we're being invited to play winnable. So, one of the things I would suggest is that people living in a country like Britain or America today are we're not just lucky in present day terms; we're the luckiest people in history anywhere. And and at some level, we almost can't seem to cope with that luck and catastrophize at this point that nowhere has been worse. And I I give example after example in the book of of I mean obviously media headlines and political statements among others, but but the catastrophizing attitude which Jonathan Haidt and others have also identified has crept in in the last decade. It's the author so of that, the coddling of the American mind. So that, for instance. 
um, take take the the uh, example I give of uh, uh, the the Brett Weinstein affair uh, at uh, Liberal Arts College in Oregon a few years ago, where um, where Weinstein and his wife were chased off campus with their family because he wouldn't engage in a white people leave campus day and said, as a Bernie Sanders supporting lifelong liberal, this is a profoundly illiberal thing to ask us to do. Now. I mention this because there were so many things that were give away about this whole incident where the police ended up having to warn them that there were roadblocks in the city with students trying to find the family and and students rampaging around campus with baseball bats. And the reason I mention this is because it's a microcosm example of something that seems to me to be a wider attitude, which is, I mean, if Nazism was to return anywhere, then a liberal arts college in Oregon would be a most surprising place for it to start. But almost as if in the very places where these things are least likely, the hysterical attitude is loudest. Again, this isn't to say that there aren't specific things that need to be addressed still, but we do have something like what I describe as, I take it the idea from the late uh, Australian philosopher Ken Minogue, something like St. George in Retirement Syndrome. Yes, tell us about that. That, that, that pops up early in, yeah. in your book. How do we know what, what that is and, and who are the dragons? So, yes, to some extent, um, anyone living today who cares about uh, um, liberal rights at some level, has a uh, hankering for what they missed. Uh, give an example. I mean, if, if you're a gay rights activist today in a country like Britain, there's just not very much to do. It's one of the reasons why the gay press is basically moribund today and has to argue for more and more unlikely and actually unconnected issues. Uh, but they wish they'd been at Stonewall on the crucial night, just like a lot of of activists in racial politics would love to have been with Martin Luther King in the March on Washington. And it's a very understandable attitude. It's sort of arriving after the revolution has been won, which, again, doesn't mean there's not stuff to mop up. But I, I, the, the, what I describe as St. George in retirement syndrome is that St. George gets such a claim from slaying the dragon that he may well wish to find more and more dragons to slay and go staggering around the land, searching for smaller and smaller beasts until eventually St. George might be found swinging his sword at thin air. And uh, th this raises, in a way, the question which is, is most pertinent, which is, would we be willing to admit if the thing was over, if we'd got to equal... And uh, one follow-on from that is, would we be able to recognise if we'd gone past equal? Past equal? Past equal. How would we know when we were past equal? Well, it's a, it's a very tricky one, this, but I, th I would submit that it's happened in each of the cases I write about, in some places. Again, this isn't to suggest it's everyone's individual experience, but uh, I would argue that in some elements to do with gay rights in recent years... Gay has gone past equal and on to better. So this is a distinction you draw between gay and queer, queer as yes. you understand it. Yes. Well, a lot of people will, will disagree with your Huge numbers of people will disagree with that. But I submit that throughout gay history that, that there has been a divide between people who are gay who just happen, like me, to be attracted to members of their own sex and people who think that being attracted to members of their own sex is simply the first step to a wider... <laughs> fiscal and political project which includes you know bringing down the patriarchy or attacking capitalism and so on and, and this has always been a divide is it actually is is where is, would we see it historically because you, you're a historian by background yeah. just, just just root it for us a bit uh, don't, we, we will take a lot some of what you say for granted but sometimes we might actually ask yeah. you where you where you get the notion well some of this was actually present in the in the late 19th century in england it was present in the entire gay liberation movement it was it was present very strikingly 
in the gay march on Washington in the 90s when one figure on the stage actually actually screams at one point, we are, we're better than them. We're better than the straights. And, see, and this was always there somewhere. It's, it, it, it's the idea, that you get it in popular culture from the idea that being gay is just a bit more fabulous than being straight. The poor straights have a rather boring task of, among other things, producing the next generation, whilst the, straight, whilst the gays can be fabulous and so on. And, and this, I give lots of examples of this. this. This is a strange attitude which Brett Easton Ellis summed up rather well a few years ago as being the, the reign of the magical gay elf, he called it, where when people come out, they are to be sort of celebrated as a rather magical being that's a bit better than the ordinary mortal. Now, I would suggest... But this is surely, even, even if you take your characterization as being rooted in, in observation, wouldn't you accept that... It's at the margins of a lot of people's experience and that the vast majority of gay people will have different kinds of politics, mm. different views. You're talking about often about very vocal minorities here in your campus example area uh, example earlier. It just sounded like these were people behaving absolutely appallingly, whether mm. they were the right, the left or whatever identity politics, they were behaving in a bullying manner and it should be stopped. Similarly, that there may be in lots of subcultures uh, an air of superiority mm. uh, or a desire to see oneself and the people one associates with has been in, in some way uh, above or superior to the society around them. But that, it's not peculiar to gay culture, surely. No, no, no. I think it's common, as I say, in each of the things I address. For instance, there's a very strange one. Here, here, let, me, let me now jump on a, on a real landmine. But, I mean, here, one that's been very striking in the last decade, because I think a lot of this, I should just stress, is, is a, what I regard as being a post-financial crash issue. We all know in history that when the, when the economics goes wrong, other things happen. Mm. And when the crash happened in 2008, we sort of pretended that that wouldn't have the effect that it's always had in history. I think there are several things that, 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 that you can trace in the last 10 years. In, the last 10 years sees this massive speeding up and then entry into the mainstream of identity politics and then the weaponization of identity in the last five years in particular. You can, you can demonstrate this from the internet histories, among other things. But uh, I would submit that the cause of this is that when the economics goes bad, when the, when the economics goes bad, we become very vulnerable to bad ideas and that they can start to flood through. And these ideas, the identity politics ideas, the intersectionality, have been around for decades. They just, they'd never had this chance because the adults had not been shown to have got things this badly wrong and therefore to be this vulnerable for some time. I mean, why have corporates taken up the identity politics I was going thing? to ask but you that. Because yes. to some extent they feel it's a sort of reparation, a sort of making up for the fact they know that they crashed the world very nearly a, ten, a decade ago. But, but the example that... But the, hang on, uh, let me just try a defence of this from a corporate standpoint. I go something like this, I pass my bank in Pride Week and to find my rather staid bank, which is usually an extremely beige place indeed, uh, was uh, rainbow yeah. logos and sort of looked very, very cheerful indeed. It just didn't look like a bank. Um, but I would guess that the thinking is, well, what banks are under pressure to acquire and keep customers, their own business model is often uh, not particularly shiny, and that they need to do more to acknowledge a much more diverse population. And that's one way or the other, they have sort of message towards women, and in this case, banks particularly wanting people with, with assets mm. and uh, 
savings that they must come to them and not go to someone else. I mean, mm. what's <laughs> wrong with that if you haven't been seen to be particularly friendly to particular groups, whether it's sort of gay men or whether it's um, mm. you, if you can come into the, the bank if you're trans, nobody cares how you present yourself. Mm. Well, why would that be so wrong? Well, I'm um, maybe cynical, but I think there's a massive amount of cynicism in this. Uh, we may have the same bank. My bank uh, last time Pride Month occurred had the slogan, Love Happens Here. I have to say I was a little bit sick <laughs> in my mouth when I saw that the first time. I, I, my manager's never said that to me. Yeah, Love Happens Here in a Great Big Rainbow. It didn't produce any more cashiers, I have to stress, which was what the bank was sorely lacking. But there's something in this that's similar to the way in which certain energy companies present themselves as being solely existing in order to make the environment greener. It's, but it's what's to jump. so wrong if it is something that they feel that their customers, if their customers really hated it, they would let them know, wouldn't they? So it may be well, it's, that it's, this is more widely the, the desire to accept mm. diversity and even to be a bit more on the front foot about mm. it might be more widely shared, even if it's somewhat passively by the public, than yes. you're suggesting. You're suggesting as if it's something that's imposed, it's an outlier that's uh, come in as I understand it, from a slightly lunatic bit of academia, yeah. some of your analysis sort of mm. seems to blame that, blame postmodernist mm. narratives. But hang on a minute, people objected to it. They, they wouldn't have to necessarily go along with the companies who embrace it. Well, you've not got very much choice uh, but to go along with companies that embrace it. I mean, this is one of the least uh, uh, offensive parts of it. I mean, this is, you could simply say that this, is, th- this phenomenon you just identified as a sort of overcorrection. You know, in the past, people were a bit homophobic. Society was very homophobic. The law was very homophobic. Therefore, after the battle is won, we will really go for the rainbow stuff. Um, but the thing that disturbs me more and the thing that just startled me as I was writing the book was the way in which more invidious bits of this agenda have come flooding through the corporate world, such as, for instance, the implicit bias training. Um, this is this is part of... Do you, do you believe in an unconscious bias at all? I think there's no science to it. And I would, I mean, as you know, two out of the three people who developed the Harvard test say... You cannot use it for the uses you're currently trying to use it for. Because? It doesn't work. Just let's let's explain it. So the idea is unconscious bias is that we have many more prejudices that we are unaware of, Mm. uh, but they might influence how we employ people, how we treat Mm. people we employ, our colleagues, and we may not therefore be be being either fair or doing right by them or by our our companies. Is that roughly Uh, roughly right? Yes, and uh, I mean... It's an extraordinary thing. It was developed at Harvard a couple of decades ago. It wasn't meant to bear this amount of weight. It's like quite a lot of things I'm writing about in this book. They have an origin in something reasonable, but they were never meant to have the weight of every government and and corporation and and public body leaning on them, for instance. So, so um, the unconscious bias, uh, uh, among other things, urges people. It it, it tries to. It tries to rewire the way that we make some judgments. It it asks people not to trust their instincts, for instance, or to be slower in making decisions and a whole range of other things, some of which uh, is fairly reasonable. But you would have thought this would have been tried and shown to work somewhere, anywhere, once before being rolled out everywhere. And this is one of the the oddities about this – and why I think there is a sort of cynicism about it, that people are doing it because it's something to do to show that you're on board with 
a load of things. But just just quickly, I promised to jump on a landmine quickly, and let me let me just do that because um, okay, let, but, let's but, have a la- landmine you served, uh, um, listeners. The, let's take because because this thing of overcorrection is is. Is I say sort of the heart of this, and it's the heart of what we're just describing, and the heart of what corporate and other worlds uh, are perhaps engaged in. Um, another example of what I would regard as being perhaps to better was shown in the wake of the financial crash a large number of times by, among others, Christine Lagarde, who keeps referring and referred on the tenth anniversary of the crash to the fact that she says that the crash may not have happened if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters, and. It's more than a slogan she's doing that. It's, it's something that's fairly, I would submit, emblematic of the era we're currently in, which is we're very, very confused about almost everything we pretend to be certain about. And that the confusion which Christine Lagarde puts her finger on there is the confusion of are men and women the same? Is one of them worse or is one of them better? And can they be exactly the same and also better? See, well, they can if her fundamental assumption, I think she's making a debating hmm. point and it's counterfactual anyway, seeing right. as the Lehmans, as it, as it happened about the Lehmans, right. as we know from the, the, the Great Lehman trilogy in, exactly. in the theatre here in London and in New York, it, it's a kind of patriarchal business right? in, in the old sense of the word, not the trendy one. I mean, the sisters, I'm sure they figured somewhere, but not so much when it came. So actually what we do know is that a particular culture did seem to end somewhere very unfortunate. So Mm. is she being so unreasonable to say with different gender casting and a more diverse outlook, it might have ended differently? I don't know. I would Mm. have my doubts about that. I Mm. would guess that sort of banks were banks by that stage. But I don't know that it's as totally as bonkers as you think. Well, I'm not suggesting that it's completely bonkers. I'm suggesting that it's, it's bonkers to be holding simultaneously two ideas in our head, which must be in some kind of uh, um, contradiction. Equal or better? Equal or better? I would submit that this comes about in the race discussion in the ugliest versions. Is Are there occasions when we get better with any race, with any race. And we're, we're fairly familiar. I, I hope we're familiar now. I think we're familiar now with where people play the game of thinking that white is better. Mm. Would we be any good with identifying it if even for a period we had some people who said actually black is better or at least we'll, we'll maintain it to be better for a time in order to sort of level the historical playing fields in some way? But better at what? Better at – we've seen it in a bit of an argument about the BBC disciplining a – presenter yeah. uh, initially it was right. felt uh, that that she had intruded her own view too strongly when she said that when Donald Trump uh, said that that a, a, a number of African American congresswomen should go home mm. and most of them as it happens were born in the US that it was a racist trope I'm, I'm mm. loosely saying uh, what she said but I think that was pretty fairly the sense of it and whether she should or not be able to comment on that given that she's black British herself well she may just feel that she's particularly sensitive to that because of her skin colour. So to that extent, one might say she was in inverted commas, not better, morally better, but that she had a particular viewpoint. Absolutely. And I think in that occasion, I think that that, that is actually accurate. I thought, by the way, I mean, obviously it's BBC impartiality rules, but on that occasion, actually it was her co-host who was at error for asking her to break 
as it were, impartiality was. I thought that it was the co-host who should have got into trouble rather than the Nagamonchetti. But but a rather a, a better example, if I may say, is is one such as the um, uh, very talented young, it happens black American writer Coleman Hughes gave in a recent piece where he said that among his contemporaries recently at university in America, he said he just had had the very clear realization that. Uh, for a lot of them, the, the white ones, they treated him, a black person, as if being black gave him a moral insight that they did not have. And this, a version of this exists in each of the groups I'm describing. Because, of course, it's been, in, the group is saying, you don't know what this is like because you're not me. Mm. And you seem to be questioning that. Well, individuals can have moral insights based on their own experience. I mean, if you had 100 white people talking about the black experience in America, you would be missing an awful lot. And it would be an unwise discussion to go on having. But to, but to assume as a result of some black people having moral insight because of their situation, that all black people share that insight, or share a moral wisdom or something, is to engage in a general a group generalization, which is the kind of thing Again, which we had been trying to get away from. And the thing that disturbs you on each of these things is if we keep leaning this hard on identity traits, character traits, other things start to bubble up. Like what? Well, the most obvious example recently has been the very ugly example of the Harvard admissions scandal. The Harvard admissions scandal where a group of Asian students have been suing Harvard uh, is is one of the ugliest glimpses of an undergrowth that we can get in our era. So Harvard, you tell us briefly what it's about Harvard and what for, you get from it. Harvard, for very um, understandable reasons, has, like most other Ivy League colleges, been trying to make sure that they have good representation on their campus of, of particularly black American students. Uh, Harvard, of course, realized, like other institutions, that that in order to upgrade some people, you need to downgrade others. And a group of Asian students uh, uh, realized that they uh, were, had been turned away despite having the top possible grades. And in the discovery process of the ongoing legal battle, um, uh, the uh, students got the, as it were, the trade secrets of Harvard uh, that Harvard was understandably loath to give up. And this showed that, among other things, Harvard had been downgrading Asian students on character traits which is a significant part of the application process at Harvard. I'm sort of feeling the need and, to put the words allegedly in well, this for, oh, no, no, for no. legal reasons. I think we're okay, actually. I, I don't think we need our allegedly's at the moment because... Well, let's just the, say it's a situation as, dogly, as okay, you understand it. Okay. And, um, but the, the, the horror that then transpired was that Harvard had downgraded these Asian students without even meeting them. It had been downgrading on character traits. Why? Because they felt, and actually this is, you know, again, this is the ugly thing, that these students would have been disproportionately likely, as it were, to get their places. So now you get this, these, um, in the name of trying to get anti-racism and better access and all these sort of things, everybody starts to talk about race. And this is one of the things that I think on each of these issues is, 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 is pertinent at the moment, is what if... See, my experience of this, and I, I, I give examples, but is since everyone's now on board the gay train, gay is being lent on too much. It's, it's, it's too much. We just want it to disappear as an issue, not to, not to come back weaponized as an issue. I would submit some of the same things happening with men and women, and it's definitely starting to happen with race. 
Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Let me ask you on the the, the gay point, uh, you're a gay man yourself. Uh, Have you always known you were gay? Uh, not always, but yeah, pretty much since adolescence. Yeah. And how much does your own experience influence the way that you look at this broader argument about identity and particularly the sort of idea and you deal in, in the chapter in some detail about arguments about whether being gay is innate mm. and gay genes and all that gets sort of quite, mm. as we know, quite complicated. But I'm actually more interested in uh, you know what, what brought you to mm. that as a gay man. I've never really written about homosexuality before at any length. Uh, I have always found it a rather boring matter from a personal point of view. I mean, it's obviously important when you're sort of working out who you are. But I, I don't think much beyond that. I don't think there's much more to explore, as it were. What I became interested in was when I saw gay going off to some other destination politically. And as I say, mainly you can see this in the gay media. They become interested in things like non-binary and so on. And, and I, I, I do, and I do, and I, of course, I finish with a chapter on trans. I do, I have for some time been raising an eyebrow about some of this because one of the great sins of our age is, of course, to disappear people, to use the jargon, uh, to disappear women, to disappear black people, to disappear gay people. And here, w- here was the actual sort of, as it were, lobby such as it still existed, actually engaging in the disappearance of gay people. So that with the trans case, because I, I try to show that 
all of this isn't going to work because, among other things, all of it runs against each other. So can I'm, you explain that in a nutshell? Well, and say, and it's obviously it's got many tentacles to it, but the claims of trans activists yeah. and why you think that's inherently... I interviewed yeah. Marmoset Mopan uh, not long ago and he said, well, I don't see the problem. He said it's a good... Yeah, he would yeah. say himself, I think, left, left liberal voices. I, I really do not see why we have to end up in this problem. I have friends who are trans... Many, many friends who are gay and gay myself, somewhat of a gay icon in, in, in American uh, writing... Why are you guys making such a fuss about it? Yeah, I mean, what Dave Chappelle calls the alphabet people in his recent show, uh, 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 it's interesting because the, the, the alphabet doesn't hold together, you know. The L's and the G's never had very much in common. You say that. I, I did question that. Les- lesbians and gays, what the heck? They never meet. Know? There's no space where they meet. Oh, come on. They're lesbians not. and gays must meet they don't all even, the time. They don't even have bars. We could go around the corner and it'd be lesbians there's, and gays sitting together having a very uh-uh. nice time together. Nope. You'll find there's a lesbian bar around the corner and you'll find a lot of gay bars, but you'll not find lesbian and gay bars. Why? Uh, they don't have much in common. There's nothing, no, nothing particularly that binds them together. There is if you've got a political project to engage yourselves in, which certainly was the case in the past. But I'd go on further. I say L's and G's have always been intensely suspicious of the B's, and the T's are another matter. And so, the reason I cite all this is because in each of these cases, uh, the, the the LGBT issues, women, racial issues, the presentation of the intersectionalists has always been that all oppressions interlocked, mm. and that if you address one, you address a lot. And I'm among other things showing. All of these actually have serious problems with each other. But that's true. And they also have problems within themselves. Right. I I hear what you're saying. But what you've described, you're looking, I suppose you're setting up possibly an Aunt Sally for the dragon hunters to slay, (laughs) to mix our metaphors rather liberally. Liberal socialists, for instance. Mm. There's there's a clear tension there. And there has been 19th century uh, liberals and before, you know, Whiggish liberals and radicals have something in in common. They're often challenging conservatives, but they they often part company. So intersectionality... Well, awful word, but it it kind of goes to the fact that a lot of views have something in common and a lot mm. apart. You might as equally say liberals, George Bernard Shaw and liberals couldn't have much in common and wouldn't have gone to the same bar, but I would find the same flaw with it. Let me... um, Find me a bigger contradiction to live with than the following one. We, we've we been living with this idea, as I, I, I described in the gay chapter, that gay is hardware and that trans is hardware. Hardware, you mean as in? I mean, absolutely no choice in the matter. Hardwired. Hardwired. The hardware thing worried me because I kept thinking of DIY, but go on. <laughs> I'm no expert in that. I wouldn't have mentioned it. Uh, no, um, ha- hardware issues and software issues. I said one of the realizations of all rights movements was that it's better to, for it to be hardware. Why are people, among other things, why, why, why? Because you are the way you are. Yeah, like you don't tease a disabled person, among other things, because it's not like the person chose to be disabled. So why would you tease the gay person if they didn't choose to be gay? And so unfortunate comparison. Of course, no, of course. Well, it's it's my point is that everything to do with hardware, like drug addicts and alcoholics, have the same thing. If you can find an alcoholic or a drug addict gene, it's much better for the alcoholic or the drug addict because it's not their choice. There's, you know, um, again, this is not to say that. Mm-mm. Gay people are like drug addicts, rather, obviously. But, but all movements to get sympathy seek to be hardware. Right. Because if it's software, there is some element of... Of choice. Of choice. 
Now, as it happens, I think the gay thing is not quite as clearly hardware as we have been saying in recent decades, but it's understandable as a playback against lifestyle choice. Lifestyle choice is played back with Born This Way. Trans learns from this and goes for hardware in the last 15 years in particular, to the extent that a piece in the New York Times last year said, uh, uh, I'm getting my new vagina this week, it's not going to make me happy, and I don't need it to. What is that other than this is giving me no pleasure, but it is so completely part of my heart that I need to do this? Now, I would submit, among other things, that the deranging attitude of our time on all of these things, another thing which we're trying to keep in our head, which can't keep both these things, is how can trans be hardware, gay hardware, but being a woman is software? The intersectional theorists and the gender mm. theorists have spent years saying you, you perform you tr- you being perform a woman. Roles. It's a performative yeah. thing. Well, again, you can have one. You can't say nobody is born in their natural sex other than trans people who are born in the wrong sex. But let me just come back to this thing of why it all grinds and why I, why I, might, why I started to notice it and mind it, which was that find me a bigger um, problem than this one. A young woman in her teens is tomboyish something we've all known and recognised. In recent years, we've got to the point where hopefully a sort of enlightened parent might say, on the one hand, my daughter might grow up to grow out of the tomboy bit and be a perfectly happy heterosexual woman, or she might grow up to be a perfectly happy lesbian. And then something comes in that says, or the fact that she's betraying certain male characteristics Mm. means that actually she's in the wrong body we should get give her drugs to suppress her development. And then, and let's not beat around the bush on this one, should, among other things, have her arm flayed of skin and the representation of a penis created. Well, that's quite a big run against. How about, how about a young man who's slightly effeminate? The parents might have thought he's either going to grow out of it or maybe he's going to grow up to be a gay man. Or maybe the slightly effeminate traits mean that he must be made into a woman. Now, these are these are big grindings. But you're sounding, though, as if... I mean, and we cannot get to the bottom of this in sort of a broad-ranging discussion about your book, but we should at least uh, give it some attention. You are sounding as if you think this is being imposed. The argument from the trans side and also mm. from some uh, clinicians who treat mm. trans people is, no, no, you, you, know, you guys have missed the point in that... There were people, many more people, feeling that they were trapped in the wrong body than the culture readily accepted. It was treated as a matter of shame. So, in fact, this is, and of course, there are difficulties about at what point and the interventions are. You know, obviously, do need very, very serious consideration if they they are to happen that way, as opposed to just self-identifying. But that you've been missing the point. I mean, that would you should at least give that some weight as a possibility. I do, as you know, in the trans chapter, I. I lay out what I think is is the most careful and indeed humane analysis of what I think is happening. And it involves going into a lot of detail that a lot of people might want to avoid. But I, I show, for instance, the way in which the intersex rights has been totally crossed over and totally missed over on this. This is people born with unclear genitalia. Uh, at no point has there been a significant movement for intersex rights. And that is an undoubted hardware issue. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, yes, I am sceptical of it in this is, why would you not have a rights movement pushing for intersex rights and go straight to the big bearded man with a penis is a woman if he says he is? 
It seems not to be a way to build a coalition, among other things. But why are you so worried about whether there's a coalition of rights-based politics, identity rights-based politics, if you don't like identity because politics? It sounds a bit like the old Jew- Jewish joke about such bad food and such small portions. <laughs> because I think what's happening is, I think the intersex to trans one gives a very clear game away, which is that it's not about building coalitions, that for for significant figures in our society today, identity is being used as a battering ram to do something else. That you you can now predict with absolute certainty the people who will be willing to jump on the latest claim in the trans movement. And it is the same people who have done it on each of the rights claims because they believe we live in a patriarchal, white, white supremacist, sit heteronormative capitalist system, which, and in a rather ugly image, they're perfectly willing just to grab trans people and use them as a battering ram against this system. And I give examples in, in each chapter of this happening. But I think that we as a society should be extremely suspicious of this. And I, again, just, just quickly... If I were to, to sum up well, on each of these things why I think we need to lean on the identity things less, it's in part because I think that, and as I show chapter by chapter, we are pretending to know about things we do not know much about, trans being the absolutely key recent example. But at the same time, we're pretending not to know things that we all knew till yesterday, like relations between the sexes, which are complex, but not as complex as we're pretending they are. So, Douglas, I've got the idea of the book in the essence of what you think is wrong with intersectionality, with a lot of identity politics as construed through a number of of key groups. Uh, And you, you take the argument to them. You, you seem to be suggesting in the title. The title's not really what I expected a book like this to be uh, called, to be honest. I, the, the madness of crowds and the example that you give at the beginning, which is a, a sort of a, a story of a kind of crowd hysteria, which yeah, sort of crowd hysteria probably happened since ancient mm. ancient Greece. Probably a lot of identity politics going on in its own way. But that's really it, what you're suggesting is that there's a there's identity politics crusade and then all these other sort of social groups and corporates and politicians and activists are herring off after it in a mad way. And yet, do you mistake kind of peripheral appearances mm. for the mainstream? I mean, have you just got yourself worked up that you kind of see yes. see your dragons everywhere of your own? <laughs> yes, I mean, the, the critique, which even a few years ago you could have given of any critique of these movements, was that's just... Uh, weird liberal arts college in America problem. Hmm. I think that's no longer possible to portray it like that because every day's news is suffused with these issues. Debates in Parliament even in the UK at the moment and indeed in America, American politics, are so infused with issues of gender, for instance, um, people speaking or not speaking because of their gender, Um, people being pushed forward or not being pushed forward because of their sexual orientation or sex or racial identity. Um, Slurs, correctly or otherwise, seen as occurring based on these things. Uh, Indeed, we saw recently uh, with the the case of Justin Trudeau, uh, an incredibly woke uh, uh, figure, turns out that historically 20 years ago it seems that 
almost every week he just liked to black up and go to a fancy dress party in in blackface and 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 this is for the first time really in his premiership the serious dent against Justin Trudeau it's it's that he he did something which twenty years ago, by the way, I think most people knew was a, a crass and pretty offensive well, indeed, thing to and do. Isn't that therefore a reasonably? I mean, there are other things that maybe Canadians might like to like or not like Justin Trudeau for in terms of how he runs a country. But mm. it, it you know it does it does look odd and insensitive and to to use a language which I'm sure would not massively appeal to you. Shouldn't he be called out for it? And I I, I think he should be. But I mean, the primary thing to call him out for is hypocrisy. Because, of course, I mean, if, I think we can all agree that if Donald Trump had been found to have this much of a fetish for blackface, as Justin Trudeau seems to have done in the past, that we would not be allowing this to go past. There is a, uh, uh, um, a sort of hubris uh, uh, point with Trudeau, who has been very happy to lecture the Canadian public when they've got views that everyone had until yesterday and haven't caught up with him. But my point is just that these things are all lying in wait, it seems. Yeah. No, they're, they're, they're not, they're not just at the margins. And they're I, not th- at the I margins. take your point. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Donald Trump, and I think we shouldn't, uh, you, you shouldn't entirely leave him out of this discussion. You kind of hung your hat a bit on the financial crash. Mm. But surely the thing that really gave this, the kind of turbocharged this subject was the election of Donald Trump mm-hmm. in the sense that the, the Republican uh, Party had embraced a character who, if you wanted to make the, the claim of what the, the white elderly male patriarchy would look like, well, Donald Trump does seem to somewhat fit the bill and many of his pronouncements about uh, women in minorities, mm-hmm. frankly, do seem to serve up that view. So there may be that there is, to, to grant you the, the point, perhaps it has crept away mm-hmm. from the margins or Gone, gone away from just parts of academia obsessing about these things. But because you do have the most powerful man in America behaving and talking in the way that a lot of people find reprehensible. Yes, I, I think that, the, as I say, you can, you can see it from internet searches that the, the, the last five years has been when all of these issues have really come to the fore. But undoubtedly, since the 2016 votes in the UK and America, there's been an added... Uh, 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 venom to them. I, I, I show how this has happened in the media and also in Silicon Valley. I had to spend a certain amount of time in Silicon Valley whilst researching this book to try to get on top of exactly what it is the tech companies are doing in some of this. And I show how I think in the in the interlude chapter on tech, how the tech companies are to some extent doing what a lot of the media has decided to do since the election of Donald Trump, which is to sort of force feed the public some of this because the public are wrong. So, for instance, the New York Times massively increases its coverage of gay issues. Actually, the business pages are all about gays in Japan at one point. And, and the culture pages are all about gay as if, you know, the New York City ballet is an amazing thing that ballet isn't the most, you know, heteronormative in, uh, institution in the US. I mean, these sort of weird overstating of things. But what I, sh- what I try to show in the tech ca- uh, chapter is but the, Silicon Valley is just doing this faster. So I give the examples of the in, the, the internet image search. It's a really striking thing. This ask for certain things from the from from the Google search, and you will get what you want. Ask for other things, and you won't. Ask for for a gay couple, and put it in Google image, you will get loads of happy gay couples. Ask for a straight couple, and you'll get a load of gay couples. Because basically, Silicon Valley is saying, "Screw you, you bigot." You are looking for the wrong. I can't believe that if I Google <laughs> straight, do it now. And, 
Oh, and, and I you, feel and, I'm being and you can, and you can set up here. You hey, can, you can. Let's um, have a look. You did ask me to, so yeah. you know we aim to please. Um, your point being My that point an being algorithm that has been designed, deliberately designed to upset the searcher, because the searcher must have biases if they're asking for that. You can... Where's your evidence for that, by the way? Oh, well, one thing is that we know... I mean, I go into the evidence of machine learning fairness, which is amazing, which is an attempt, among other things, to change the past. MLF is an effort to change the past in order to adapt to the current social trends. So that, for instance, you show... European history as being much more black than it was because you don't there's a good sense in it somewhere which is you don't want anyone to think they can't do something because of their own characteristics and because in the past for instance I know most I've got lots of images of men and women under straight couple which is exactly what I would have expected what am I doing yeah. wrong uh, yeah, I, I can show it to you afterwards uh, I'd be surprised they may they may be changing it since a load of people have been searching it since I pointed this out in the book but uh, I have the captures of it what do we think the way forward is one way of reading your book would be as a sort of creator curve. Everything is going wrong in a sense with the liberal project, mm. whether one's a conservative or or a liberal liberal or even a a, a moderate left leaning liberal. You seem to suggest that this madness, the madness of crowds, has mm. has sort of swept over us and these traditional political positions and political philosophies of some durability are not really good at, at resisting this. Is that because you think these forces are both irrational but so powerful they can't be resisted? Or do you just think we're just having a bit of a mad period? I, I think we are having a bit of a mad period. I th- and the problem, as I try to lay out, is, is that it can't work and that the whole thing does have so many contradictions that it will cause this grinding pain of different identity groups against each other, that it's an it's a game we shouldn't play because it's a game that cannot be won. Now, the thing that strikes me in this is, I've mentioned that there are people who are doing this for very cynical political purposes. But the one that worries me most is young people who is who who's who are being offered this as their primary sense making apparatus. And I have a lot of readers in their teens and twenties and come to events I speak at and uh, things I go to. And I know that when you're told to look at the world through this prism, where everything is about your privilege, where everything is about trying to work out where you are in an ever-shifting hierarchy and whether you're allowed to speak or whether you have to listen and what you're allowed to talk about and what you're allowed to think about and all this, this is going to cause immense unhappiness. It already is causing immense unhappiness because my my hope is really that, as I say in the race chapter, that the Martin Luther King dream is the one we stick to, that it's not the character traits of an individual that allow them to speak or think, but what they have to say and the content of their words. And if you don't do that and you ask people to line up in exactly the right order to, for instance, stay in your lane, there is an such an amount of grinding pain that's going to happen for these young people. So I I want to, as I've tried to do in the book, explain the breadth of what's happening, pick it apart, and then, crucially, invite people to do something better with their lives. You know, a friend of mine was speaking at Harvard the other week and told me afterwards that uh, the questions, this has been my experience as well in recent years, the questions all end up as being about identity issues. 
And this friend was so disappointed. He happens to be an entrepreneur. Um, he was so disappointed, and he ended up saying to the class, why are you doing this? You should be trying to work out how we live in underwater cities and how we live on Mars. Why are you all trying to work out where in the hierarchy of race and sex and gender and sexual orientation you should be and where you can speak and where you can't and what you should be allowed to read and what you can't and what's staying in your lane and what isn't? Why would you be doing this? And that's that's my my real hope is can we get off this beyond it, back to equal, back to trying to ignore these traits and on to doing the extraordinary things which people at the most fortunate bit in history with the most fortunate access to information and knowledge have ever had should be doing with our time. I'd just like to turn the tables, perhaps on both of us, um, and say that use the word woke earlier. And it's just one of those words where other people completely identify with it and there's bits of wokery and woke culture that just grind on them every day and then others who just think it's just a lazy sneer um are you woke about anything and if so what what are you woke about <laughs> um well it's become one of those shapeshifter terms hasn't it i mean all words bend and crack or whatever it is that Elliot says but uh, uh woke certainly was a term that people used to like to use about themselves, and now they really don't so much because it's been satire. And there's been a great outburst of satire in recent years because of this, of people sending it up. And so woke is not something people quite want to actually describe, self-describe as so much anymore. Um, if it's about, if it were about taking into account people's position and, and adapting and having a sensitivity to them where they are at some disadvantage, then I would say yes. I mean, um, I would think that in my personal interactions with people, I I don't, you know, I don't actually go through life like some kind of, um, what are they called, things you iron cricket pitches with, a sort of, a big you know, a great thing. big, I don't actually go through life. And I do think that, that you have to adapt around people's life experiences and things they've missed, things you've missed and so on. But I think it was... Um, Roger Scruton said about me recently somewhere that he said Douglas is essentially an agreeable person who's been bullied into being disagreeable by disagreeable people. <laughs> You're giving yourself a bit of a free pass there, aren't you? <laughs> That's a, not my review of myself, I stress. But I think there is something in that. I mean, I, I just don't think that any of this... I think this has to be done at the level of personal ethics, personal behaviour the realm of manners, but it cannot be instrumentalised, it cannot be formalised, and it cannot be weaponized. And that the attempt to do that actually makes us abandon the realm of manners, which is the only place we can really be to sort out what's always going to be a messy universe. Douglas Murray, author of The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity, very nice talking to you. I have a feeling we'll uh, hear quite a lot back from listeners about what they think and whether they think we're, that you're woke enough, anti-woke, or indeed whether the madness of crowds has, has swept through us. And thank you very much. It's a great pleasure.